title of today's message is Walk the Line. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 if you want to turn there in your Bible. Now the, the purpose of today's message being called Walk the Line is that we're going to be discussing how we live our Christian lives in a world that seems to be totally opposed to everything that we stand for, everything that is in the Bible and the morality and the, the way of righteousness that it teaches. Now Tammy and I did not grow up in Christ-centered homes. Tammy was more or less a Roman Catholic, and I was more or less an evangelical Lutheran, kind of going in between Catholic and Lutheran. I developed my own religion. I called it Catherine, you know, kind of between Catholic and Lutheran. But really, neither one of us paid attention to what either one of our faiths taught. We didn't live in such a way that, was, um, that reflected our faith. But then we got saved, and the church that we got saved in was much more focused on right living and holiness than anything we had ever experienced. I mean, they, they had just ways of saying that you should do this and should not do that. And we, so we adapted that into our initial faith and decided on what was right and what was wrong. And one of those areas was concerning the celebration of Halloween. We learned that it was a dark time. We learned that it was um, about the history of the day, that it was most likely begun as a Celtic festival of Samian and was recognized at the beginning of winter when it was dark more than light. The ancient Celts believed that the borders between the spirit realm and the physical realm were especially thin during that time, and evil spirits could jump over that border and come get you and, and harass you and even enter you during that time. So the way that they would combat this and prevent these evil spirits from afflicting them was to put on costumes that looked like the demons, believing it would camouflage them from being able to be harassed by these demons. Halloween has also been attributed to the wicked belief that of it being their most high, and I use the term loosely in this case, their high holy day, where individuals, practitioners of witchcraft, will bring about their wishes for the next year and cast spells so that their will can be done here in their lives. And early Christian missionaries to the northern British, British Isles learned of this celebration and they Christianized Halloween. They used the they taught the truth of the gospel while still trying to be respective of the traditions to the local peoples. So they changed Halloween over to something called All Saints Day or All Hallows Eve, which remembered the lives of great Christians and saints that went before, people in the Bible that taught of the true way of God, even dressing up as, as them, dressing up as Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or maybe King David or Solomon, and having public skits to teach Bible stories to other people in the areas, and they used it evangelistically to teach the gospel in a way that people would understand because they couldn't just hand them a Bible because nobody knew how to read. And there were no Bibles really printed back then. There are some of the holiness traditions of Christianity that believe that the early missionaries made a mistake in this, that they should have abolished the whole idea of Halloween. But the early missionaries took it as an opportunity to meet people where they were. And they took something that Satan intended for evil and redeemed it for the kingdom of God. Now, if you believe, as we did for years, that Halloween needs to be completely avoided, we believe that for years, and totally unrecognized by Christians, totally shunned and spoken against, then we really should be consistent with our beliefs and cancel Christmas. We also should cancel Easter. 
Because both of those holidays, the most important holidays in the Christian faith, are holidays that were actually converted pagan, converted from pagan holidays. Christ wasn't born anywhere in, near December. He was probably born in September during the Feast of Tabernacles. You can see that in John 1.14 where it says, uh, a lot of people believe that John was kind of writing between the lines when he said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt is the same one as the Hebrew word for tabernacle. So it believes, they believe that John was writing Jesus' birthday right there, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us during the Feast of Tabernacles. He was born then, and he died right after Passover. Since we have an accurate Jewish calendar, we can be very accurate in stating when Jesus died. And if you convert it over to the Julian calendar that we use and nail down these dates, we can do it very precisely. Now, Passover next year is on April 10th. So Easter, if we're going to be totally honest with everybody, should be on April 13th or 14th. But it's not till April 16th, so they don't match either. And sometimes they can even be weeks apart. And I bring this up because we as Christians have a choice of how we deal with this culture that we live in. Nothing really has changed in the last 2,000 years. I mean, sure, we have jet aircraft, we have internet, we have cell phones. But the challenges that we face in addressing the culture that we live in have not changed very much. Those early missionaries could have, have taken a very holy um, holiness vibe with them and sat on the side of the road and yelled at all these people wearing costumes and called them stupid and all that and saying, you're going to hell because you celebrate this, this holiday and, and stood on that principle. But what would have happened? They probably would have been killed immediately and sacrificed to the very gods they were yelling against. But instead they used wisdom and redeemed it for the kingdom of God. And because they used wisdom in dealing with these people, the gospel took firm hold on the British Isles until it was the religion that everyone followed in the British Isle for hundreds of years. And they followed the principle laid down by the original church planner, the Apostle Paul, and he gave us some instruction about how we interact and live in a culture that seems to be completely and diametrically opposed to everything that, we, that stands for godliness. And now I just want to say just something really quickly. I understand that there, are, there may be a few people here this morning that some of the subjects we're going to be discussing are matters of very deep, religious conviction. There may be people here that said, I want nothing to do with Halloween. I want nothing to do with this culture. I want nothing to do. I'm going to practice separation and that's just the way it is. If that's where the Holy Spirit has you, I say amen. You need to follow your convictions and follow your conscience. But I would also encourage you to consider the words of St. Francis of Assisi, who said in necessary things, fidelity. In other words, we should be true to the truth. In doubtful things, liberty. If it's not specifically condemned or applauded in the Bible, allow each other liberty. And in, but in all things, we should have love for one another. So let's look at some of the principles that the Bible gives. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the exact subject, and he has this following to say. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. He said, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul repeats this principle in Colossians uh, chapter 5, verse 4. He said, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And Father, it's that heart that we want to approach this world with, that we want to make the most of every opportunity you give us to, to enter into this culture to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. So Father, be with us this morning. Help us to use your word to challenge our views on things. And let us know your will for ourselves as individuals, and for each other as a body of Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now this morning, we're going to be using these thoughts to develop a biblical perspective of how the church and the individual Christian interacts with this godless culture that is around us, and how or if we should participate in some of its activities. We're using Halloween today as, as that thing that we're talking about. We're going to be looking at the principles behind this idea. And we're going to be looking at the principle as practiced by Jesus. I think if we do things like Jesus did, we're probably going to be in a good spot. Amen? And then we're going to look at his application of these ideas as he lived on this earth. And it's going to help us make decisions about these issues, both in our church and in our personal lives. Now the principle that we see in this uh, scripture, at these two scriptures that we just looked at, is twice told in the Bible as, and summarized as saying, be wise in the way we act toward those outside the church. And it gives us a question that needs to be answered. How do we live in a fallen world, among fallen people, in a way that pleases God and helps us make the biggest impact for the kingdom of God? Well, the Bible gives us some clear instruction here. It says we are to be wise. And wisdom is defined as the application of experience to sound and proven principle. And sometimes a church, in reacting to cultural changes around us, has not always been very wise. Many times we stood on principle, but when principle always rules the day, it's perceived and then practiced as legalism. Legalism's root is religious pride. For example, most people here who are alive in the 80s would remember an organization no, uh, that was formed called the Moral Majority. Anybody remember that? Jerry Falwell developed the Moral Majority in 1979. Moral Majority was a Christian special interest group who lobbied Congress to pass laws uh, regarding moral issues and Christian issues. Now the principle, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? Certainly. We want to have a nation whose character and whose laws represent the heart of God. Because God can use that to bless our nation. But, was it wise? No. And I'll go into that in just a minute. You can't legislate morality. Because it doesn't affect the human heart. 
It didn't work for 4,000 years in the Old Testament of them using law to try to, to, try to govern people. And it's not, it hasn't worked in the time of grace that we live in today. And you can't legislate morality at the point of a sword. Do it or don't do it or else. That's what happens in China right now. They, they legislate their exact behavior of all their people with very strict laws. And what do you get out of that? You get a moral atheist. A person who follows the rules, but really doesn't affect their heart. And at the end of that, you may have this moral person, but they never come to faith in Jesus Christ. They never see themselves or who they really are before God, and they will still end up in hell. If we try to use political means to legislate the gospel to this nation, all you will get is the same thing. A people wearing a facade of Christianity without experiencing the rebirth in their spirits. And that's largely what happened with the moral majority. They had the appearance of being godly, and they probably were godly in very many ways, but they used some very carnal ways to try to get their agenda promoted. Threatening senators and threatening representatives with getting, you know, kicking them out of office if they didn't hold to this very narrow view. And that's something we need to understand about God's purpose for the church. The church of Jesus Christ, as founded by Jesus Christ, was never meant to set up an earthly kingdom. It was never meant to set up an earthly kingdom. We've tried that a few times since Jesus rose from the dead, Church of Rome being the primary example. The Church of Rome took over everything within Western Europe. They were the law. It didn't matter who was king over in France or king over in Britain. The Roman church was the primary influencer of everything behind the scenes of all those countries. What do we call that time in history? The Dark Ages. When the church tried to rule the world through using political means. It's not our job. That job of running the earth is reserved for Jesus alone when he comes and sets up his millennial kingdom at the end of the Great Tribulation. Our job as a church of Jesus Christ is to be an embassy for a spiritual but a very real kingdom. You and I are the ambassadors to that kingdom and we exist to bring the good news of this kingdom to this foreign country we call the planet earth. And understanding this is critical because it will change and totally change how we view our lives and the church's purpose for being here. And that's why the Bible gives us these principles regarding how we act with the unsaved that are both wise and are the way that Jesus did ministry while he was here on this earth. Now Jesus showed wisdom in dealing with people who are not believers in the following ways. And these were his principles. The first thing, Jesus met them where they are. Jesus broke all of society's expectations when it came to meeting sinners. He was frequently accused of being a friend of sinners, which was about the worst curse you can give a Jew, would be the, a friend of sinners. He was accused of being a drunkard because he attended parties where drinking was occurring. He even having some question about his relationships with women being too liberal for the religious establishment of his time. I mean, Jesus actually ministered to women. Jesus befriended women. Jesus taught women. Jesus used and appointed women to ministry positions. 
And that was one of the most radical things he did while he was on this earth. Jesus met people where they were. The second thing that Jesus did is he did not immediately judge their sin. Jesus never judged sin. I challenge you to go through the gospel and point out where he judges sin with the exception of religious pride. Where he can immediately condemn a person because of a sin in their life. In John chapter 8, a woman was tossed at his feet who had been caught in the very act of adultery. In the very act. Makes me wonder which one of the Pharisees was elected to go peeking in people's windows. I mean, did they give him like a referee suit and a flag to throw and yell penalty? Stoning? I mean, it just made me wonder how they figured this out, but I guess that's not very relevant to what we're talking about. Just kind of where my brain goes, I guess. Now, if Jesus was standing on principle only, he has to follow the Old Testament law, doesn't he? He is a rabbi to the nation of Israel. He has to stand on Old Testament law. The Old Testament law for adultery and fornication was that the woman and her lover had to be stoned to death by the, by the entire community with her husband throwing the first stone. Jesus is God. He has to uphold the law, doesn't he? He's holy, holy, holy. When, when a word is repeated in the Hebrew, it's meant to put a magnificence to that word. He is ultimately holy. Holiness requires justice to be done to all evil. And this is an evil thing that this woman has done. And by the law, Jesus would have been completely correct in ordering her execution and then picking up a stone to throw at her. However, Jesus didn't judge her sin right there. Jesus showed compassion and mercy, didn't he? Jesus confronted an entire crowd of religious leaders and knelt down and started writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. Some people believe he, he just started listing out just the Ten Commandments that they were supposed to be followed. And they were cut to the heart when they realized that they too were guilty of these sins. Maybe he wrote their last name or who they were and wrote their besetting sin that they had committed that day. But whatever it is, it said that the greatest of them left first. The oldest and greatest of them left first. Until there was no one left to condemn that woman. And he ended it with those words, If any of you are without sin, you pick up the first stone and throw at her. So let me ask you, church family, do we want to be the crowd of religious people or do we want to be Jesus? Sometimes we can get so lost in what is right that we forget to act the right way. And the right way is love. And that is our third principle. We show them love. Now, love is not a free pass. Love is not leaving the people where they are at. Jesus did not say, pat this woman on the head and say, hey, go back to your bedroom. He said, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And when we interact with the culture, we need to learn to love them first and earn the right to say that to them. Earn the right to speak into their lives and to their spirits. Then we continue to love them into a mature relationship with Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge them to grow. It doesn't mean that occasionally we don't have to get in their face and say, what you're doing there is wrong. You are not representing Jesus in a way that is pleasing to him. We need to shepherd them in their walk with God. But we have to start with the standpoint that they are babies in Christ and babies need time to grow. 
The principles, meet them where they are. Don't try to be their judge and show them love. That's what the Bible shows us how to be wise in our dealings with those outside of the church. Now let's look at another example of how Jesus um, dealt with another situation and see the application of what we are talking about. Jesus' model for dealing with a sinful culture and a sinful people looks like this. And you'll see it in John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. Now just as a little bit of background, ancient Israel, we remember that King Solomon died. The nation of Israel split into two different countries. They had like a little mild civil war there, and they formed two separate countries. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel lasted another 190 years before it was conquered by what is now modern-day Assyria. It was called the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians, as most people back then, carried away most of the survivors of that war that were in the country and brought their own people in to occupy the land and fortify it. Now those Assyrians, over the next 500 years before Jesus came, came and took wives from the conquered people that remained. And the Samaritan people were born. They lived in an area that was called Samaria. Today it would be between Jerusalem in the south and the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel. Right smack dab in between them. Jewish people, faithful Jewish people, who had largely stayed true to the command not to marry outside of their bloodlines, hated Samaritans. They hated Samaritans worse than anyone else because they were seen as traitors to the Jewish faith and they were a constant reminder of God's judgment upon the evil of their ancestors. Even though many of the, and many of the Samaritans were followers of a form of the Jewish religion, they were barred from ever attending synagogue and they were put to death if they ever went anywhere near the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus' cultural norm was... Samaria was to be avoided at all costs. Don't look at it. Don't go anywhere near it. Don't travel through it. If you see a Samaritan, they would literally stop and walk off the road so they wouldn't get too close to the Samaritan as they passed. That was the, 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 norm, the normative uh, behavior of Jews in that time. The problem is, is there was a practical problem. Samaria was located in between Galilee where you had faithful Jewish people, and Jerusalem, where you had faithful Jewish people. So there was no way you could go directly from the north in Galilee down into Jerusalem to worship at the temple without passing through Samaria unless you took a huge bypass over the Jordan River, and there are no bridges, so you're actually wading through the Jordan River, down the east bank, back down up into Jericho, and back up the uh, mountains into Jerusalem. So a 60-mile journey turned into over a 100-mile journey, having to do that to completely avoid Samaritans. Now Jesus walked straight through this area. He walked through an area that everyone in his family, everyone in his faith, everyone in his country considered the absolute ghetto of Palestine. An area where the people were beyond redemption and universally hated. Now put this in a little bit more of a modern perspective. Imagine a pastor walking into a strip club run by ISIS in rural Afghanistan, sitting down at the bar, smoking a hookah, drinking a beer, and then giving $1,000 toward their war fund. In the eyes of the Jewish people, 
This is what Jesus did by entering Samaria. That is how bad that social faux pas was to them. So Jesus, in the eyes of the religious leaders, he's in trouble. But then, he actually stops and talks to one of them. Not only did he talk to one of them, he asked to drink from their very cup. Not only did he talk to one of them, not only did he ask to drink from their cup, but the person Jesus was talking to was a woman. We've already established that women were more or less second-class citizens at that time and weren't deserving of a man's attention. Not only did he talk to one of them, not only did he drink from their cup, not only was she a woman, but being that wells were generally outside the city for sanitation purposes, and it was the middle of the day, he's talking to a woman alone. Because his disciples had gone to find food. So he's alone with this woman. Not only did he talk to one of them, not only did he drink from the cup, who, not only was he talking to a woman who was outside the city, out of sight, totally alone, but this woman he's talking to has quite the reputation of being, shall we say, a little morally loose in her bedroom activities. If Jesus was a pastor in a church today, he'd immediately lose his ministry credentials for this. But Jesus valued people. He valued people over other people's opinions. And because of that, he had the three principles that we talked about before. He went and he met her where she was. He did not immediately judge her, and he showed her love. Jesus always used this model in dealing with people, no matter how sinful they were. The application of those three principles asks, which of these three responses can we apply to situations or people that we run into in life? And the three responses we can have to the things of this world are receive, reject, or redeem. Now how did Jesus apply those three responses to this woman? What did he receive about her? He received this woman where she was, in the condition she was. By showing her respect, by talking to her and not shunning her. He gave her honor not, it, by ignoring whatever the town may have thought of her. And therefore, he was able to show her true love. He rejected her lifestyle of sleeping around. He did not excuse it. He pointed it out. He didn't pat her on her head and leave her there. Jesus used this very situation and earned the right to speak into her life and was able to gently speak the truth about the situation she was in. Then he redeemed. Because of his receiving her in love, showing her the honor that is due all people, showing her with love, he led her to be redeemed. And not only her. She became an evangelist that spread the good news of the gospel to her whole city. You can use these three applications in dealing with everything in life that we deal with and how we interact with our culture and the people around us. We can receive something. We can find the good in the situation. Even if it seems like there's no redeeming qualities or good things you can pull out of the situation or person, start here. The person or people involved with that were made in the image of God. They are not on this earth by accident. They were made by in the direct plan of God. 
in the image of God, and therefore they are worthy of your attention, respect, and love as much as the Holy Spirit enables you to do so. You can reject the sin. You can reject the sin, but still love the sinner. That doesn't mean you help the person struggling with alcohol addiction buy booze. It doesn't mean I'm going to take my skills as a paramedic and help a heroin um, abuser inject heroin into his veins. But it, mu- it does mean I can sh- help show them a better way. It does mean I can still talk to them about Jesus. It means that I have to love them into the kingdom. It might mean that I'm the person they call when they fall off the wagon and off the bar stool and need a ride home. It might mean I have to forgive them if they vomit in my car on the way home because they're so drunk. And I've done this before. I've, I've, I've had to go and pick people up from the bar. There's a trick, by the way. Take a garbage bag, make a slit in it, put it over their head, and if they throw up, they can go right into that garbage bag. That's just a paramedic trick I'm showing you. Helps with the cleanup. Reject the sin, but love the sinner. It's hard. And as I said, I've been woken up in the middle of the night to do exactly that. And you're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to do so. We redeem. We take the bad situation or the bad action and turn it around and redeem it. It might take a few times of picking up that person from the bar. It might take a few times of helping that that drug addict who's trying to quit and they're, they're there and they're covered in sweat and all kinds of other stuff because they're going through withdrawals and helping them and loving them through it. To see Jesus living within you and want his help. It might be spending a night holding their hair while they regurgitate their paycheck into the toilet. Oftentimes it's going to mean giving up our comfort zones to be obedient to the word of God and redeem the time. Reject, or excuse me, receive, reject, and redeem are the three applications of principles to live a life about Jesus. Now let's put these these three concepts into actions regarding Halloween. And we're almost done. We're going to use Halloween as an example. Do we receive, reject, or redeem Halloween? What can we receive about Halloween that's positive? One thing I think the biggest thing about Halloween, in particular trick-or-treating, is that everybody in the community is sharing, aren't they? They're sharing. They're sharing baked goods, candy. Some of, and some of these baked goods take a long time to make. Tammy spent just about the whole day yesterday baking. They, they come together and they start sharing their lives. They share their children. They share pictures. They, and they come together as a community to, to have this kind of event. Another thing we can receive is dreaming within our children. I mean, why wouldn't we encourage our child to want to be like Captain America, a virtuous hero that goes and helps people? Why wouldn't we want to encourage something like that and dreams within our children that they can become a person like that? Now, if they're going to dress up as a zombie, that you know, maybe we can twerk that a little bit or something more positive. But still, our children are dreaming, and that's a good thing. Trick-or-treating and Halloween is about meeting new people. You know, in this 21st century, we're the most connected generation ever to exist. 
We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on social media that we're connected to. But at the same time, we have the most shallow relationships of any generation. Halloween gives us that kind of opportunity to look up from our five inches of reality that we see on our cell phones and actually talk to people, connect with people, shake a hand, compliment their kids, come together as a community. And that is a good thing. Another thing to, to receive Halloween is to show the love of Jesus Christ. The video we watched at the beginning of the message said, don't be that house. Now as Christians, they'll say the only thing you can do is hand the kid a track, and that's it. Now a kid's expecting candy and you hand him a piece of paper. How do you think what is on that piece of paper is going to affect them toward the gospel? Christians should have the best candy. We should have the best baked goods. And we should be the ones that show the most love to these children. Because how often does the whole community show up on the doorstep of this church? That doesn't mean we have to receive everything about the modern practice of Halloween. We need to reject the dark elements. We need to reject the witchcraft, the sorcery, and the dark side of the spiritual realm that seems to be taking over and being highlighted during this time. We need to not focus on the evil that's subtle and not so subtle. We definitely will reject the sexualization of everybody, particularly the young girls. And we absolutely reject the exploitation of young girls and young boys that is associated with this holiday. This holiday is second only in this country to Super Bowl Sunday for the sexual exploitation of young men and women. And we absolutely reject death because Jesus defeated death on the cross and then rose again. How can we redeem it? Use it as a way to show the love of Christ. Plan strategically. Almost every family in our surrounding community will be on our doorstep this Monday afternoon. Let's make it a great experience for them. Give generously, and you have, and we thank you for that. We have, what, three, four hundred bags of candy ready? We have apple cider, and now we just need people to come and bless the people who come. And we're praying for great weather and great temperatures tomorrow, and it looks like it's, that's what it's going to be. And we need to redeem it by showing them the alternative to this day, representing fear and death, and show them God's love through us and point to Jesus, his son. Meet them where they are. Don't judge the sinner for being sinner. And show them love. If we start there, then you can properly discern what you can receive, what you can reject, and what you can redeem for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's rise. There is one more thing about these principles that we should think about. They're the same one Jesus uses for you. He received and continues to receive you right where you are. He continues to offer forgiveness and grace right where you are. No matter what you've done, no matter what has happened in your life, He continues to receive you right where you are. Jesus has not judged you. He rejects all the bad things you may have done. He rejected them to the point of dying for you to pay the penalty for your sins before a holy God. 
But he didn't leave you with just that. Jesus rose again to show us that there is absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who believe in him. He wants to put that new, that new life within each one of us. Jesus loves you. Jesus redeems all who come to him, asking for forgiveness, and who make him Lord and Savior of their lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.